is to be welcome. Uh, I'm uh, I'm posting some links in the chat. Uh, it's for today's content. Uh, feel free to browse around. I'll give everybody probably five more minutes. Hey, Amanda, welcome. Uh, I'm pasting some links to the chat, and uh, these are the materials that I uh, go by. Uh, at least most, most uh, these are the most materials I go by with today's uh, episode. Welcome, Hussein. I'm pasting some links uh, to the uh, to the uh, in the chat. These are the materials I go by with uh, today's episode. Now, I want to say I'm not rewriting the history. These are the history. Actually, I find out to be very strange that uh, no one. has talked about.
Hi, welcome. Uh, I am have pasted uh, all the uh, links that are related to today's episode, uh, with one exception. Uh, that is the original arrest reports of the uh, of Rosa Parks, and uh, that I have on my laptop. So, so I think with that, I'm going to get started. So, welcome everybody. Today is uh, February the 26th, and today's episode is titled "The Darkest Secret About." Rosa Parks, and uh, I'll start with some uh, news update. I uh, in my in the in the chat room, I paste three links. In the chat room, the earliest three links I I post there. These are all about the uh, mass shootings. So apparently, this past weekend, not this weekend, the previous weekend, uh, is uh, the worst gun violence weekend. Uh, on record, uh, it said there is like, uh, what is it called? Uh, I'm trying to see what is here. There is uh, some something like uh, 10 mass shootings from February the 17th through February the 19th. And, uh, and uh, which is uh, a lot, definitely. And uh, I have said before that uh, the, the, the Ukraine war, the war is organized mass shootings. Basically, the shootings are well-planned, well-executed with the sole purpose of massively kill the enemies, the other human beings. The, uh, because we have do have a second amendment and the, because we do believe uh, this uh, saying called uh, no justice, no peace. So there's uh, more and more Americans choose to use firearms to settle scores to seek justice. So this past uh, weekend is uh, particularly brutal. And I do saw uh, once is happening in Philadelphia, which I probably is uh, 25 minutes away. And I also post, posted two other links about uh, this uh, murder-suicide phenomenon arising out of uh, domestic relations family disputes, husbands and wives. So in this particular past week, there is a, a Detroit police officer, they are married couple, very young, with a very young kid. And they committed a murder and suicide. I did not read too much into the detail of it, uh, but I will say, thankfully, in this particular case, the kid was left alone. Remember, in my past episode, I have posted different links where the uh, murder-suicide in, uh, uh, actually involved kids. Very, very young, very, very beautiful-looking kids were killed in a murder-suicide situation. So, so, so I also posted an older story. This is a, happening in Baltimore. A, a, a couple who are FBI agents, who both works for the FBI, they also committed murder and suicide due to domestic issues. So I have said before, all mass shootings should be investigated to the fullest extent to find out what happened, why it happened, so we know how to prevent them. But guess what? The mainstream media, the government, the Bar Association, they don't want this to be known because uh, it's not good the truth is not convenient for them. So, so that's one thing I want to talk about. And uh, 
the uh, the uh, the second thing I want to talk about for the news update is this. Whether uh, because uh, this past week is also the one year anniversary of the Ukraine war. Uh, to me, the Ukraine war is again organized mass shootings. Currently, whether you like or hate Putin, it, it, does, it does not matter anymore, because uh, the war in Ukraine is a military question. It's a question how to massively kill the enemies, uh, uh, and it's no longer a question of a political opinions or public opinions. And uh, as a matter of fact, I'm going to touch a little bit about this uh, Nord Stream bombing. It's actually somewhat related. It's a little bit stretched, but it's somewhat related to what happened to Rosa Parks, believe it or not. And uh, and uh, the last thing I want to mention is that, that I mentioned this before. They said, you can kill a man, but you can't killed his idea. This week marked the anniversary of Malcolm X's assassination. I am just very, very impressed that the, how the mainstream media, the white left, was able to manage piece by piece, one, one idea at a time. They somehow was able to manage to kill Malcolm X's idea without killing Malcolm X. And uh, in my opinion, as this today's episode will show, the mainstream media, the the the, the white left, is always good at playing a trick to hide the full set of facts of the civil rights struggles, so that they allow themselves to selectively promote MLK's nonviolence approach and relegating Malcolm X's argument, and so. So, so today, I hope this today's episode can showcase that as well. So, 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 so with that, I'm going to start with, uh, with uh, the introduction. You know, I might need some help uh, having Amanda, having July, have a, a Stuby here. If you guys open up a uh, the the first link, uh, uh, it's uh, Alabama Bar Association Hall of Fame. Uh, webpage. In that, in 2008, they make this judge, John B. Scott, one of the members of the Hall of Fame. John B. Scott, on that website, Alabama Bar Association, he is a man of literacy. A man of literacy means what? A man of literacy means that this guy knows how to read and write. This guy knows the the best about how to read and write, right? So as a matter of fact, I need to open it up. I need to read one of his poems because that's what the Alabama Association, Bar Association posted there. Now I'm going to skip what the achievement this John B. Scott had uh, as listed on the Alabama Bar Association. Again, this is an active live website praising this judge. This is the first trial court judge of Rosa Parks. Judge Scott lived in a full life and had a fulfilled legal career, but he was also an accomplished writer and a poet. This is from the Alabama Bar Association. 
The following is one of his poems entitled An Appella Judge. An appella judge is but a judge with a work that's never done with. Read and write and write and read is all he can have fun with. Those who aspire to robes estate had best put thought of gain behind them. For banks and brokers neither never take the time to find them. That some reward in fact exists. That's quite a fable. That isn't quite a fable. Because every now and then they are at the speaker's table. Now, one would think a life like this would cause some disfaction, but strange to say, they, everyone, always seek re-election. So this is a poem written by Judge John B. Scott, who is the first trial judge of the uh, Rosa Parks trial. And uh, I want to say this. It's amazing that how these uh, judicial white privileges, or just white privileges, how how good they are setting up monuments for themselves, set up memorials for themselves. John B. Scott, this judge, also have a trail, a park with a natural tra uh, trail named after him. So again, you know, they all, uh, the, the one of the most famous segregationists is the expert of how to set up memorials for himself. His name is Strong Thurman. He is a U.S. Senator from uh, South Carolina. You can Google him. I think no one has more places named after himself than Strong Thurman, who is a very famous segregationist, who is also a good friend of Joe Biden, our current president. So, John B. Scott is no exception. He really know how to make names for himself. And now we're going to we're going to later look at what he did, or what he did not do in Rosa Parks' case. Okay. So this is the first section I want to talk about. Introduction is this judge, because of the in, the entire my entire three theory about judicial white privilege is this: these judges. These white judges, they are ex trained extremely well in literacy. They are the expert, the most intelligent readers and writers in English. So it's not possible for them to not to know a law, every single word of a particular law. And we are going to talk about the Montgomery City Code, about bus segregation. And you will think, a person like Judge John B. Scott would have would know every single word of the law, and he will apply that law to the facts. Right, that's his duty as a judge. So that is the first thing I want to talk about. Introduction of this judge, John B. Scott. The second uh, segment I want to talk about is the many other boycotts the mainstream media, the white left don't want you to know about. I have posted this link. Uh, this link is, uh, is, uh, is in the JSTOR. Uh, it is also in the American 
Journal of History. I pulled a full copy of it. It's about the 31 pages. It's published in 1969. The title of it is called The Boycott Movement Against Jim Crow Streetcars, not bus, streetcars in the South from 1900 to 1906. Now, I have uh, posted uh, the link to this article. I'm going, just going to be quick with this article. I quickly read it. The streetcar boycott, which is also a segregated seating arrangement in streetcars back then, is widespread. It happened in Nashville. It happened in Atlanta. It happened in so many cities. Montgomery, Alabama is no exception. As a matter of fact, in Montgomery, Alabama, the boycott of streetcars lasted two years, not one year. The bus boycott lasted only a year. The streetcar in, in 1900 lasted two years. Okay, so there is a uh, and there is a lot of writing, uh, there's a lot of uh, newspaper uh, reports about those uh, streetcar boycotts, and they are very fascinating. They are very colorful all by itself. And uh, interesting enough, nobody wants to talk about it, especially for this uh, Montgomery, Alabama one. And why is that? As I said before, the history is, of this country is always written very selectively to promote a particular narrative, okay? So what I want to talk about is this. The third segment is about this so-called vacant seat provision. So let me repeat, it's called the vacant seat provision. In the chat uh, of this uh, episode, you will see a Kent Law blog. Uh, it's in that, it's a, a pretty long blog. But what it shows you is this. It shows two things that are very useful, which I'm going to go by. Uh, I'm going to run by it. The first thing it talks about is this. He posted the Montgomery City Code, the actual ordinance by the city that Rosa Park reportedly has violated. Okay, if you go into that Montgomery City Code, again, it's by the Kent Law School. It's a law library blog. It posted the image. And uh, pay attention to section 11. And uh, as a matter of fact, if I have volunteers, please call in. And I would love to have you guys to read this particular law and see whether Judge John B. Scott have read the same way that you are reading it today. Okay, feel free to call in and uh, you know, volunteer yourself to read this. So this is a one segment I'm gonna talk about. Section 11, chapter, uh, chapter, uh, 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 chapter six, section 11 of that law. In this particular block, right, at, uh, right below this uh, city code, I'm gonna read what this block said. In August, 1900, after Plessy versus Ferguson, allowed segregation on public transportation. Blacks in Montgomery boycotted streetcars for two years, ending only with a new city ordinance that forbade bus drivers 
from compelling anyone to vacate a seat unless there was another seat open. This is very important. The ordinance was enforced for the next twenty years. Next twenty years, meaning it will end somewhere in nineteen twenty, until the fever of the boycott faded. Well, the fever of the boycott may faded, but the the letter of the law is still on the book. Is that right? So just remember, there is a provision. It's called the vacant seat provision. Now you can test you, yourself whether you're a good reader or not. Read the section eleven, chapter six, section eleven of that code. Where is that vacancy provision? Is at any volunteers? Amanda, may I pick you? I want to invite you as a speaker. As a matter of fact. Well, in case Amanda is not able to talk, I'm going to read this、uh, chapter six, section eleven for you guys. Okay, so actually, I'm going to skip the title. Oh, actually, oh, section eleven, same dash powers of persons in charge of vehicle, passengers to obey directions. Any employee in charge of a bus operated in the city shall have the powers of a police officer of the city, while in actual charge of any bus, for the purpose of carrying out the provisions of the preceding section, and it shall be unlawful for any passenger to refuse or fail to take a seat among those assigned to the race to which he belongs. At the request of any such employee in charge, if there is such a seat vacant. So the last few words is this: If there is such a seat vacant. So in other words, a bus driver has the power of a police officer, and he or she can designate seats. According to the race of the passengers, and the passenger must obey the direction of the bus driver. But all this, in the law, it says, "Comma, if there is such a seat vacant." So apparently, the city of Montgomery Code, as of 1955. When Rosa Parks got on that bus, still has this vacant seat provision. This vacant seat provision is a result of a two-year boycott of streetcars in the 1900. Right, but so the question will be: Is the bus full when Rosa Parks was asked? To give up her seat, you will think the judge John B. Scott will care a great deal about it, right? So, this is where we're going to take a look closer at what actually happened.
Okay. So, so before I forgot, because this uh, Kent Law has a, another good uh, description of what actually happened. The last paragraph of this block in by Kent Law Library is this: the Montgomery City Code enforced during 1954 required quote separate equal but separate and quote accommodations on city buses as suggested by Plessy. Chapter six, section eleven of the code still had the vacant seat provision that ended the boycott of 1900. Though most bus drivers ignored the provision and forced black passengers to stand when the bus was full. Remember what he said here. The bus driver will ignore the provision and force the black passengers to stand when the bus was full. That way, no white passengers had to stand or sit next to a black passenger. So remember what this particular blog is saying. The police officers, the bus drivers, knowingly ignore the provision, the law on the book, this so-called vacant seat provision. They will force the black passengers sitting in the seat to stand, to yield the seat. to make up a vacant seat. That is what is happening. So did anyone tell you what is the situation on the bus when Rosa Park was asked to give up her seat? That's a big deal. Because if the bus was full at the time, according to the law, then the bus driver has no business other than just keep on driving until there's more passengers get off the bus until there's more seats and vacant seat. Right? You will think when Judge John B. Scott, a man of literacy, a great man of law, he will care about this. Right? So, but apparently he did not because he convicted Rosa Park. And I'm going to go to the detail about this. As I know about this a long time ago, probably three or four years ago, when I first started working on this topic of a white privilege, especially judicial white privilege. During the 1955 boys, a bus boycott, the goal of the bus boycott is extremely modest. As I said, as displayed in the Rosa Parks Museum, the MLK says, we are not seeking an end to segregation. We are okay with the segregation. That I know already. I know this many years ago. I do not know why, but I know this many years ago. Okay. The, uh, I know later that the demand, the main demand, of the bus boycott is having a so-called fixed dividing line on the bus between the white sec section, white segment, 
and the Negro segment. And I know why. At that time, I do not know legally why it's that. I later learned why it's that. MLK is, is fine with the segregation. But you can tell the law on the book is a set. If the bus is full, the bus driver has no business to ask anyone, to ask anyone to give up their seat. Right? So, 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 so as, as I always ask this question, if the, you know, if the state conviction of Rosa Parks still stands today, how come there's no governors come out and say, well, let's pardon Rosa Parks because it, this is not right. And I now know why there's never have a governor's pardon of Rosa Parks. It's because Rosa Parks actually never violate chapter six, section 11. Okay, now actually a little bit jump into the conclu uh, conclusion a little bit. So let me go the next step. The southern states, in my opinion, are super good at something called the trigger law. You have heard a lot about this uh, abortion laws in the south, right? They are called the trigger laws. What trigger law is? A trigger law is a law that is unenforceable. And maybe become enforceable if a key circumstances occur. In the abortion cases in Mississippi, maybe in Alabama, they say, okay, if you got pregnant, but it's after certain gestational ages, that triggers this law. It's called a trigger law. This is what the southern states is very good at. Is this a vacancy provision also a trigger of when the bus driver can enforce Chapter 6, Section 11? In plain reading, it is. It's what these people are good at. They always want to place a trigger, man. So the trigger is whether this bus is full or not. Okay, now let's look at the same facts that Judge John B. Scott look at, that we are looking at today. Okay, the link I post, it's, uh, it's, although, it's from, although it's from a Brimore College, which is a college outside of Philadelphia, but actually it's originally from uh, the organization called the CORE. I think it's called the Congress for Racial Equality. In this link, it talks about actual circumstances, okay? This is uh, some news report in December the 5th, 1955, about the trial of Rosa Park. It was a bench trial. The judge is John B. Scott. In that link, there is a segment called Bus Driver Testifies. The bus driver is no other than James Blake, the actual driver who asked Rosa Park to give up her seat. I'm going to read this newspaper clip. Bus driver testifies. City prosecutor Eugene Lowe called Montgomery City Lines bus driver J.F. Blake to the stand to open the city's case. 
Blake briefly told how Rosa Parks refused to move to the rear of this bus last Thursday night after he had requested her and several others to move to make room for white passengers. He was taking on he was taking out near the Empire Theater. Blake said there were 22 Negroes and 14 whites seated in the 36-seat bus and that he asked several of the Negroes to move to the rear in order to equalize the seating. So let me repeat what he said. He said there were 22 Negroes and 14 whites seated in the 36 seat bus. So it seems to me the bus driver said the bus was full at the time. And he asked several of the Negroes to move to the rear, to the standing room though, remember that, so that he can take on, so he can, quote, equalize the seating. He just meaning he want to make vacant seats for the white passengers. So the bus driver literally testified saying, yes, the bus was full. He is just making rooms for the West, West, uh, white passengers. By the way, there's, there, were, there were white passengers standing on the sidewalk waiting to board the bus. So you, you will think Judge John B. Scott would consider, okay, the law is written as such. There is a vacant seat provision. I'm pretty sure John B. Scott reads newspapers. He reads history. He knows where that vacant seat provision came from. It came from the two-year streetcar boycott in 1900, 50-some years ago. Right? But he will not ask that. He will not ask that. As this uh, Kent Law Library blog has said, 20 years after the, provi uh, the vacancy provision was established in 1900, in around 1920s, the bus drivers started to ignore the provision and forced black passengers to stand. If the blacks are sitting under their seat, make them stand up because there's a more white passengers is coming up when the bus was full. That is a big deal. If the whites are unhappy with the fact that sometimes when the bus is full, that they have to stand, they should change the law. They should change the law so that the bus driver will have unfettered discretion to make rooms for the white passengers, that they, they, but they did not. It's the bus driver, the police officer, they can make a new law without the vacant seat provision. They can just add a whim to ask any sitting black passenger to stand up, get back to the bus so that a white passenger can sit down. And I think that is why Rosa Parks said, among all segregations, the bus segregation is the worst. Because the police 
is the lawmaker. The police is the law enforcement. That's not what the law is supposed to work. So what I'm trying to say is this. By the words of the police, by the words of the bus driver, the arch enemy of Rosa Park, James Blake, by his own words, the bus was at that time full. And he was asking Negro passengers sitting to stand up. He also asked Rosa Parks to stand up. When the law clearly stated the circumstances did not trigger the enforceability of chapter 6, section 11. You will think all these judges and lawyers throughout the history until today will tell you that. How come they never told you that? The closest article about Rosa Parks' legal uh, the conviction is published in the Yale Law School Journal by the, entitled this, Martin Luther King's Constitution comma, uh, sorry, uh, column, A Legal History of the Montgomery Bus Boycott by Randall Kennedy. I do not know whether Randall Kennedy is, uh, he is a law professor, assistant professor, Harvard Law School. Okay, I do not know whether he's a black or white. This is probably the most detailed writing about the legal history of the Montgomery Bus Boycott. Even in that article published in 1989, did not talk about the vacant seat provision. Did not talk about the fact that Rosa Park actually did not violate Chapter 6, Section 11. It is actually the police is the aggressor. It's the bus driver being the aggressor, not only just to Rosa Parks. The bus driver is actually asked a few black men stand up. They did. Rosa Parks is the one who said, I'm not going to stand up. This is what I called a criminal of aggression, a person who always commit a crime of aggression. When, when his target is just minding their own business, doing things within the boundary of a law. And is this a bus driver who violated the law? Okay, so this is why I want to stress the mainstream media, the white left, the white privilege in journalism. You can show me the most progressive writer of American history. They will selectively hide the full set of facts of what actually happened. Why they do that? They want to whitewash exactly what happened. Exactly what happened is that under this thing called the white majoritarian democracy, the law is a weapon to commit a crime of aggression. 
Okay, so that is the John B. Scott. That is about something called the trigger law, where the southern states of the United States really love to have. And there is a trigger in chapter six, section 11 of the segregated bus code. Okay. Blake, James Blake, in 1989, is reportedly being bitter about his place in the history books. This, this is on one of the links. He, James Blake, told the Washington Post reporter in 1989, quote, I wasn't trying to do anything to that Rose uh, Parks woman, except do my job, end quote. This motherfucking bus driver is a fucking criminal when he died in 2002. To me, he's a criminal just like the criminal who killed uh, 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 Matt Tilt. Okay? Because Blake has no fucking business to even ask anyone to get up and vacate their seat because the bus was full. The law requires him to keep on driving until there's a vacant seat that will trigger the enforceability of Chapter 6, Section 11. Now, you will think that will end here. No, it will not. The whole story did not end here. The procedural history of Rosa Parks' conviction is the next segment I want to talk about. I have posted the link of this North Carolina criminal law blog down by this professor, Jeff, Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey, uh, what is it, Jeffrey Welty. Okay. Uh, he, he, yes, go ahead. We can't hear you. Try again. If we can't hear you, I'm just gonna force you, uh, force me down. Yeah. Can you try one more time, Elmin? Hello. Oh, by the way, my phone for some reason is overheating. Excuse me. I need to take some. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to force mute. Uh, I'm going to uh, take Brady as the next caller. Okay, my phone is having, uh, is getting a little bit overheated. I, I can hear you okay though. Okay, cool. Thank you for calling. Yes, go ahead. I have taken some measure. This is a. The temperature of your phone is too high. <laughs> Go ahead, Brady. Uh, I'm looking for links to the story. Honestly, I just left the meat market, and I was just trying to help you kind of regulate or kill some dead air while your phone was acting up. <laughs> oh, like- I appreciate it. I will, I will make you the, a speaker, and then I'll make you the operator, okay? Uh, so the a moderator, okay? So uh, let me uh, make it ready. If your phone dies, we'll just keep the room alive until you come back. Yeah, I'm sure I, yeah, yeah I'll come back. Yeah, I'll Absolutely. Come back. And then, um, 
Are there any links Please. that uh, link to this story at all? Do you have any links to the story at all that I can kind of catch up with? or should I? Yes, in the chat room, uh, in chat room, there, I post a lot of links. Feel free to open them up and uh, all of them. And uh, I appreciate it. So I'm now making you the moderator. Again, my apology because uh, I did not know we have a 40 degrees temperature. I sit in my vehicle and then my phone is uh, heating up. <laughs> But the phone is my Wi-Fi, also my calling uh, device. Okay, now I'm going to go uh, continue on. The uh, this uh, law professor in North Carolina University, he posted the entire procedural history of Rosa Parks' conviction. So John B. Scott is not the first judge. Like I always said, the judicial white privilege is far more advanced. As we all know, there's a layers and layers of protection to protect the white privilege in the legislative branch and the executive branch of the government. Okay, it's a very fascinating, sophisticated protection racket. So Rosa Parks' conviction, Rosa Parks actually go up one level. So the John B. Scott, belongs to a court, the lowest court, called the Recorder's Court in Alabama. Now, in the other one, I know, the lowest court is called the Justice of Peace Court. That's the lowest court, where there will be judges there who you, uh, don't have a, even a law degree. You can be a Justice of the Peace Court judge. So Recorder's Court judge, John B. Scott, is the first one who convicted Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks then went upstairs to the so-called uh, Circuit Court of Alabama. The Circuit Court of Alabama is the next level, as uh, Professor Welty has pointed out. It's something called the trial de novo. De novo, D-E space N-O-V-O just means that this Rosa Parks will go through another trial. The judge is supposed to look at the entire facts and the law as if never happened. It never happened. I trial de novo, meaning the judge is going to look at the case one more time as if it was never looked at before. So this next level of judge is by the name of Eugene Carter. Eugene Carter also convicted Rosa Parks. Oh, by the way, as you guys, some of you know, I traveled to Montgomery, Alabama to get the detail of all these uh, records. I, I think I got most of the de uh, records I needed. So John B. Scott's trial is supposed to have a transcript. Right now, I did not locate the transcript because of what I read about how the bus driver testified is from a newspaper reporter. And those records should have been in the transcript of a John B. Scott's courtroom, courtroom. So I am trying to grab the transcript. I want to see the official transcript in which the bus driver said the bus was full. And the record shows John B. Scott never discussed the vacancy provision. Okay, so this is the first thing. 
So when it comes to Eugene Carter, when it's to Eugene Carter, the uh, he, I would say, he he left some records that are very self-incriminating. Okay, that's something I. It's published in the in the Alabama uh, archive and the history website, which is also recorded in this uh, Yale uh, Law School law school article called the legal uh, legal history of the Montgomery bus boycott this law article written by Redden Kennedy quoted something that are very is confirmed what I find out in the in the in the record on the record by Eugene Carter again he is the judge of the Alabama Circuit Court which is one level above recorder's court. This is what Judge Carter wrote. Judge Carter also convicted Rosa Parks. Quote, the defendant, Rosa Parks, was sitting on one of the first drew seats immediately behind those occupied by white passengers and all seats assigned to whites were occupied and all standing room in that section was taken, end quote. So remember, this Judge Carter also said, Rosa Parks was sitting behind the white segment, and the white segment is fully occupied, and this, all standing rooms are fully occupied. Continue with Judge Carter's writing. Negroes were also standing in the Negro section period. The evidence is in dispute as to whether or not there were vacant seats in the Negroes section, end quote. So Judge Carter said the Negroes were also standing in the Negro section. Now, does that mean that the Negroes prefer standing when there's a vacant seat in the Negro section? Possible? I'm not saying it's not possible. But remember, the bus driver testified in the open court. He said all the 22 seats in the Negro section were taken. The bus driver said that. Remember, Judge Carter said the evidence is in dispute as to whether or not there was a vacant seats in the Negro section, unquote. Now, if you are doing a trial de novo, meaning you are doing a trial brand new, you, you like think about it, like you are having an O.J. Simpson trial as if the first O.J. Simpson trial never happened. Are you as a judge has uh, supposed to validate all facts when facts are in dispute? That is a judge's job, right? And you will think, if the bus driver says the bus was full, who else would say the bus was not full? More thing, I will tell, I will talk about it in the later segment. Continue what this judge says. Now, this judge has said, the Negroes were also standing in the Negro section. But he's not sure whether there's a vacant seat in the Negro section now. Continue what he wrote. In order, quote, in order to take 
are more white passengers who were at the time waiting to board the bus. The driver, the agent in charge, requested the passengers on the row of seats immediately in the rear of the white section to give up their seats to white passengers. This would have made four more seats available to whites, and under such reassignment, the white section would have been increased to 14 seats and the Negro section decreased to 22 seats. A defendant, a Negro, refused to move in accordance with the request of the bus driver, the agent in charge, and was arrested for such reversal, unquote. Now, that's what Judge Carter wrote in his judgment. As I have said, it is a judge's job to find out actually whether there is a vacancy in the Negro section or not. I actually believe this Judge Carter, he knew, he is he was aware, fully aware of this vacancy provision. I am pretty certain that Judge B, John B. Scott also was aware of this vacancy provision. They just deliberately look the other way. Remember, John B. Scott, a man of literacy, a great man of law, does he know how to read the law? He does. Then why he doesn't talk about this? When the bus driver in front of him testifies saying, there's 36 seats on the bus, 22 is taken by the Negroes, and 12 were taken by the whites. Now, I have a look at the records. Another reason is this. I also, we always wonder too, also why the lawyers of, for Rosa Parks did not argue that. The fact that Rosa Parks actually did not violate Chapter 6, Section 11. To my surprise, there were two lawyers representing Rosa Parks, and both are African Americans. There was a very progressive white lawyer by the name of a Clifford Durr, D-U-R-R. If you Google this guy, Clifford D-U-R-R, and I do not know why, okay? I do not have all the evidence to say, conclude yet. If you Google Clifford Durr, all the publication I can see by this Googling is saying that Clifford Durr represented Rosa Parks in her defense. But I, from the judicial record, from the court records I gathered, there's no place to show Clifford Durr was the counsel on record for Rosa Parks. That is a big deal to me is this. Like I always said, I want history to be true and full with no whitewashing. Clifford Durr did a lot for the black people. I have a suspicion he could be a communist. By the way, Rosa Parks Museum showed 
the communists play an important role in the Montgomery bus boycott. Okay, so I'm not questioning Clifford Durst's contribution to the civil rights, but I want to make sure the facts are straight. If Clifford Durst was not the lawyer on the record for Rosa Parks, then he should not be said to be one. Because I always thinking why I always wonder still wonder why the two lawyers both uh one is uh, one is uh, Gregory uh, I don't know uh, Fred Gray I believe and the other one is uh, I, uh, I should be able to find the hold on a second the other one <laughs> both are African Americans I know the other lawyer is. Uh, Excuse me, this uh Charles Lanford, L-A-N-G-F-O-R-D. Both are African American lawyers. I always wondered why these two lawyers did not bring up the vacancy provision and challenge the police authority and the enforceability of chapter six, section eleven. Now, I have a guess. It's an educated guess. Remember I said, judicial white privilege, the problem is not the word white. The problem is the privilege. What I mean is this. All these fancy lawyers and judges who are sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court working for the big law firm, they all came from very privileged background, and they all attend very privileged schools such as Harvard, Yale, Columbia. They are the cream of the crop. They have the highest IQ among all white people. At the same time, imagine back then, you can think about what law school these two African-American attorneys went to. Take a guess. I'm going to guess. Probably not Yale. Because it's too privileged for black kids to go there. Not Yale. Maybe some law school in Ohio. In Delaware. All right? Maybe they're just not that trained. This is why I always wonder how come Clifford Dirt did not work behind the scene for them to challenge that. To me, like I said, it's not accident. I always said, if you're black people, if you're Chinese, you don't want white people to write your history. You have to go research yourself. You have to leave no stone unturned to find the full sets of the facts to show the true picture of a civil rights struggles. If you don't do that, if you outsource your own history to others, then you will not know fully about your roots. You will not know fully about your history, then you will not know fully about your presence, and you will not know fully about your future either. So that 
That's why I encourage everyone. You know, if you are Hispanics, you are Native Americans, even you are white, go dig out your own history, because you want the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the full truth of what happened. So Eugene、uh, Eugene Carter also convicted Rosa Parks, according to Professor Jeffrey Welty. Rosa Park went up one more stairs,、uh, one more one、uh, upstairs again, to the Alabama Court of Appeals.、Uh, I actually find out hilariously in the Alabama archive and history in the department, they don't even have a copy of the Alabama Court of Appeals. But luckily, I was able to find that copy in the Alabama State University. Which I believe is a HBCU college. They have the judgment issued by. I think this.、Uh, I may be wrong.、Uh, don't hold me on that.、Uh, another, the third judge, Judge Howard, is the judge for Alabama Court of Appeals. In the Alabama Court of Appeals, the judge Howard says. The lawyer for Rosa Parks to fail to file something called assignment of errors. I'm going to guess the something called assignment of errors means that the the Rosa Parks judge、uh, lawyers did not specify exactly what error errors were made in the court below. However, the judge wrote something. Interesting. The judge said, "Rosa Parks' conviction should be deemed as quote statutory and quasi criminal in nature." End quote. This is Judge Howard's ruling. Here's my question again. Everything about this thing called. The vacancy provision is a question of stat- statutory interpretation. It is a judge's job duty, everything, to interpret a law, to say what he believes, what the law means. So, if Rosa Parks. Was allegedly violated a law called Chapter Six, Section Eleven. There, there, there is a statutory question in the law itself, isn't it? If you look at a lot of Supreme Court cases these days, a lot of these are statutory interpretation. One lower court may interpret one law this way, another.、Uh, A court in a different circuit will interpret the same law differently. So they go up to the U.S. Supreme Court, say, "Hey, please help us to understand this law better." So it's called a statutory interpretation. Then how come the Court of Appeal of Alabama saying that the conviction is all about statutory would not? Discuss 
whether this vacant seat provision, which by the, the, the newspaper back then has been violated since 1920s. As I said before, in the white majoritarian, uh, white majoritarian democracy, the courts is not the place for justice. The streets are, is the place for justice. That, that's why MLK is known to organize street pro protests, boycotting. You, know. you may or may not know, Malcolm X, at age of eight, he wanted to be a lawyer. I, I, for that, I know if Malcolm X ever became a lawyer, the hell break loose in America. So, so, so Rosa Parks was now, did not give up. He and King went upstairs again to the Alabama Supreme Court. And uh, Professor Jeffrey Welty find, I did not find anything about that. Uh, Professor Jeffrey Welty uh, he did his research and find that uh, the Rosa Parks and the MLK withdrew their Alabama State Supreme Court appeal as part of the settlement uh, with the uh, with the city, and that they paid the fine. And therefore, according to Professor Welty, Rosa Parks' conviction stands as of today for a law she did not violate. Oh, by the way, I did reach out to Professor Jeffrey Welty. He is kind enough to call me back. And I shared my finding with him. And he said, that is a very interesting finding. Basically, Rosa Parks' conviction, Rosa Parks was convicted and still convicted as of today, by a law, actually did not give the bus driver to ask her to give up her seat to, to begin with. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? That is the whitewashed history of Rosa Parks. But there's more, believe it or not. There's more. What I do the next is this. So I went to the Alabama State University because I want to see the arrest report, the actual police report, what the police wrote up about Rosa Park. That is the charging document, right? You know, I have said, I, I, my, I myself was uh, a victim of the FBI. The FBI conducted a pre-dawn raid of my residence. Okay. When the FBI was about to leave, uh, FBI squad about 25 people showing up at 5 o'clock in the morning with guns, flashlights, everything. And I asked, can I get a, a copy of what law you're... You're, you're based, you're relying on to search my house. So they, they actually did not give me the full copy of the search warrant. 
but they gave me a, a, a attachment of what's being seized from my house. And in that attachment, there is the uh, the, the number, the, the section, the title, the chapter of the federal law under which they search my house. So within 24 hours, I did the research on that two statues. I said, no, what I did, I know what I did. I, what I did it does not even get close to the federal laws by which you are searching my house. So I really want to know what the police wrote down about Rosa Parks to get her arrested, right? So here comes the beauty. So just think about this. For all the police shootings that we have learned about in the recent history, say since uh, 2015 till today, one thing we can always find out, it's not always happened, but it's happened almost universally. After the police shoot someone unarmed dead, do you, they do write up a police report. Let me ask you all, how often you find out that police report was truthful and accurate? I'm going to say, I have said this before, thanks to the advancement of technology, thanks to the advancement of the availability of the video camera capability of smartphones, the citizens has become the police of the police. They record what the police are doing. And quite often, they caught police lying in writing under oath. Did the police start do lying on police report just recently? I'm going to say no. <laughs> they had this tradition since a long time ago. They had this tradition because they know the courts are always in the cahoots with the police. Fuck the police reform. What we really need to reform is our entire justice system. We will have to start with the judges. Okay? So that's, now I'm going to show you what I read in the actual police report. This police report in the original form is, is stored in the archive of the Alabama State University. Again, HBCU. Uh, I met uh, Jason. Uh, uh, I forgot his last name. Start with T. I'm not going to butcher his last name. He's super helpful. You know, he showed me this, uh, the original paper. I was literally shivering because uh, I cannot believe I'm reading the original paperwork. On this paper, it's a form called the State of Alabama, City of, of Montgomery, County of Montgomery. It's the original paper, yellowish, but unmistakably it's original because it, it has uh, three layers of writings on it. One is uh, type writing letters and sentences in black ink. And then 
there is a typewriting sentences and words in blue ink. And then the third is this. The third is there is handwriting sentences and paragraphs in blue ink. So just let me explain that it has original typed up stuff. Then there will be typed over stuff. And then there will be handwritten stuff over it. None of those modifications has a date on that. Think about it. Think about we are having an O.J. Simpson trial. We collected a whole bunch of DNA evidence. Who touched those DNA evidences? Can you imagine, are you going to have a good chain of custody, time stamps on who touched those materials? You need to have that. You need to maintain the consistency, the integrity of the evidence, right? So in this piece of arrest reports of Rosa Parks, it's literally written many, many times by different inks, cross things out right over. And I'm going to tell you what I see. It's all going back to that vacant seat provision, okay? On the cover sheet of this arrest report, it says, Rosa Parks accused of black ink typewriter, chapter six, city code, chapter six, section 11. Remember, that is the code. That's typewritten in black ink. However, over it, there's a handwritten blue ink which is changing that to chapter one, section eight. Remember, chapter six, section 11 has the vacancy provision. This is what Rosa Park was originally requested by the bus driver. This is what she was originally arrested, but someone Use a blue ink ball pen. Cross out six, put one. Cross out section 11, put eight in the cover sheet. Below it, plead not guilty. Judgment, judgment, guilt, found guilty. Sentence, $10 or 14 days labor on the streets of the city. Date the 5th, December 1955, John B. Scott, recorder course. This is the first thing. Now, why chapter 6, section 11 got crossed out? May I say, goes all the way back to the provision, vacancy provision. You ask, in what time did this change? I don't know. Someone just coming in to change it. More to come, okay? Now let me go to the next one.
on the uh, on the on the on the second page of the uh, of the arrest report. Again, this is originally typed up in black ink. It still says in violation of chapter six, section eleven. This area is not crossed out, even though the front page got crossed out. This one is not. However, right below it, there will be both handwriting, handwritten in blue ink notes. And then below it, there is a typewritten paragraphs in blue ink. So the content of this page, the second page, is also modified. Okay. Again, the original black typewriter ink says chapter 6, section 11. In the blue typewritten ink, it says it violate chapter 1, section 8. And then it says it changed to the provision of a general act of Alabama, 1947. In other words, it's changed further to a state law. So initially, it's the city of Alabama, city of Montgomery Code, Chapter Six, Section Eleven. Then it got changed to city code, but Chapter One, Section Eight. Then it got changed again to the state code. It's all done without the actual date and when those were modified. Why this is done this way? It's to cover up the existence of the vacancy provision. To cover up a crime of aggression. Because like I said earlier, Rosa Parks and the other passengers sitting in that section, when the Negro section is entirely occupied, full, need not to give up their seat at all because of the two-year streetcar boycott 50-some years ago. Despite the lousy decision made by the U.S. Supreme Court called the Plassey versus Ferguson. So not only we have to thank the court, the U.S. Supreme Court, to establish Plassey versus Ferguson to have this bus streetcar segregation, we also have to thank the Alabama, Alabama courts, the state courts, to ignore their own law. Who condone and, and and approve a crime of aggression by a white bus driver against black passengers? We have to thank these courts. You can tell. I'm not saying, you know, like I said, I always said this. Uh, this law professor at UPenn, Amy Wax, you know, said. All the racial unfortunate happenings in this country is an accident, like a car accident. I said, no, no, no. It's a deliberate crime of aggression. 
the police do what they do because they know the courts is going to protect them. And they can come in to temper their own police reports after the facts. And of course, this report I'm looking at is signed by James Blake, the bus driver. And uh, and guess what? Who could uh, validate since when, what time and date stamps that when these tampering happened? Nobody. But it does serve a big purpose. It serves a purpose for you all to forget about this provision, the vacant seat provision. There's more, believe it or not. This is why I said this is a darkest secret about Rosa Parks. Remember Judge Eugene Carter has said in his own writing, he said, the Negro section is standing, there's a passenger standing in the Negro section there's a passenger standing in the white section. And he said, what is in dispute is whether there's a vacant seat in the Negro section or not. Remember he said that? He said that despite the fact that James Blake himself testified in the lower court saying the bus was full in both sections. There's more white passengers waiting on the sidewalk. Guess who is that? Uh, who is the, uh, you know, where that dispute comes from? It is on this police report. In the, for this trial, the city is about to call 11 witnesses for city. Rosa Parks has no witnesses. I do not know why, but the fact that the Rosa Parks attorney did not bring up this vacant seat provision argument it just shows me probably, you know, like I said, they are probably not trained in the privileges law school, such as Harvard, Yale. They are probably from some, you know, second class law school. The city has 11 witnesses. Three showed up. One, of course, is that bus driver, James Blake. He said we what he has to say. One of the Witnesses for the city is a person by the name of Lillian Crawford, a Cranford. Lillian, L I L L I A N. Cranford, C R A N F O R D. In this arrest report, it says parentheses after her name. U.S. Attorney's Office, closing parentheses. So this Lillian, assuming a woman, Okay, I'm going to guess. Back then in the 50s, you work in the U.S. Attorney's Office. I'm going to say probably a white woman sitting in the white section of the bus. There is a blue ink handwriting on this arrest report. Mrs. Cranford says, seat vacant. Very simple word. Mrs. Cranford says, seat vacant. There's no detailed description where this 
Lillian Cranford sat. I'm going to assume she sat in the white section. I'm pretty sure she is facing front. I'm pretty sure the bus driver has a better view of both the Negro section and the white section. The bus driver said the bus is full. But you will think when the judge is holding a trial, when there's a testimonies conflicting each other, you will think this judge will say, let me find more witnesses. Maybe I should call witnesses from the Negro section. Maybe Rosa Parks herself. Maybe the other three Negroes who did volunteer, who did give up their seat when the bus driver so requested. Do they end up standing? Do they end up sitting another vacant seat? Is there more vacant seat after three of these Negro passengers gave up their seats in the row Rosa Parks sat? You will think the judge is going to ask these questions, right? No, the white judge will not ask these questions. The white judge will just say, the facts are in dispute. I do not have a duty or obligation or capability to call on witnesses to find out what happened. So to me, this handwriting on this original arrest report, by the way, this arrest report is made on the day of the arrest should not be altered during the trial. But it seems to me it is altered during the trial. So what I'm trying to say is this. The arrest report I'm looking at is evidence of a crime. Not by Rosa Parks, but by the police department of the city of Montgomery. It's the evidence of a cover-up of a original crime committed by James Blake. Because Blake has no, had no business to ask anyone to give up their seat. His only job at that time is to keep on driving until there was a vacant seat in the back of the bus. So, so you will you will ask, you know, Peter, why you are so detail oriented? Because of the, they said the devil is in the detail. You know, you you know what Malcolm X once said. You know, the, the, the God created uh, the white man as a devil for all of us. I think something to that effect. The devils do their job in great detail. Therefore, I have to pay greatest attention to detail. And there's a lot of detail. I will share with you another one. This actually is a good, I think this is written in this, uh, it's, a, it's a good piece. That is called the legal history of the Montgomery bus boycott. I suggest everyone to read it. 
despite the fact I, I criticize this article, you know, this author being the assistant professor of law who failed to discuss this uh, vacancy provision, you know, who is teaching in the Harvard Law School, I think it's a failure on his part. But he did some good, uh, good piece too. In this same article, he wrote this, which I find out to be very, very refreshing. I will just tell you. Every legal profiteers and the courts promoters will tell you how great this Brown v. Board of Education, how great it is. I'll tell you, it's not that great. And this particular author also said something, just tell you how not so great the Brown v. Board of Education is. Again, Randall Kennedy said this. In Brown, Chief Justice Earl Warren declared for a unanimous court that, quote, in the field of public education, the doctrine of a separate but equal has no place. End quote. This is what the professor wrote about the Brown v. Board of Education. Remember, I've said always, I think Malcolm X also said this, that Brown versus Board of Education is not a good decision. So here what the professor says. Clearly, the court could have condemned all statutes requiring racial segregation. But that is not what the court chose to do. Rather, the court left open the possibility that the de jure segregation might still have a place in the fields other than education. Bingo. You think you're going to praise the U.S. Supreme Court for Brown versus Board of Education. In fact, the Supreme Court then left the door open for other racial segregation, my friend. See how clever these judicial white privileges are? Remember this. Plassey versus Ferguson is decided on the segregation of streetcars. So, by the way, like I said, uh, July is still here. Uh, July, thank you for still being here. July, the other day, uh, tell me, Sabi Saps is going to have a YouTube uh, uh, show about uh, who is actually uh, refused to give up their seats before Rosa Parks. And she's going to talk about these uh, five uh, Alabama women who, who, who actually fought the bus segregation and all that. So I told July, guess what? The first person who fought segregation is not even in Montgomery, Alabama. It's Ida B. Wells. Because I actually passed by Ida B. Wells Museum in uh, Holly Springs, Mississippi, on my way from Montgomery to Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, there, you know, I saw Ida B. Wells is the first person who refused to give up her seat in a segregated streetcars. This is even before the 1900 streetcar boycotts that I talked about earlier. But coming back to this, remember this. When the U.S. Supreme Court handed out the Plessy versus Ferguson decision, remember Plessy versus Ferguson is about segregation for streetcars. Did the white people 
limit themselves to apply racial segregation towards inside uh, within the streetcars accommodation only? Of course, they did not. The way the white people you you use the uh, U.S. Supreme Court decision in the Plessy versus Ferguson very universally. It will apply to restaurants. It will apply to buses. It will apply to schools. It will apply to every fucking thing under the sun. But however, when the U.S. Supreme Court, after seventy-five some fucking years, to correct their own mistakes, they are very modest. They are very judicial. They are saying, "By the way, we believe in public education. The separate but equal have no place." But in other areas, maybe in the opera theater, maybe in the Harvard uni- University, maybe in those places of high privilege of high society, maybe the separate but equal accommodation should be allowed. That is the. White judicial white privilege we're dealing with, and there's no no mistakes about it. Then you will ask if you know a little bit history about school desegregation. President Eisenhower literally have to send people with the guns to schools. But guess what? According to Professor Welty here, the Alabama courts, despite that the U.S. Supreme Court declared bus segregation is unconstitutional, they uphold they upheld Rosa Parks' conviction. So should the President Eisenhower send the National Guard with arms to Alabama courts and point a gun to the to the judges saying? You better rule the other way. Otherwise, I'm going to shoot your brain out. And I said it before, Chairman Mao said, the political power comes from a barrel of a gun. Malcolm X said the same thing. Because it is clearly, you know, these state judges, they know a clause called the supremacy clause in our constitution, meaning the state courts must follow the case law decided by the federal court. You know, do we, you know, when these state court judges in Alabama upheld Rosa Parks' conviction, but by the way, like I said today, it's not even, it's a conviction of a law she did not even violate to start with. Is that a judicial insurrection? Meaning that a state court is in an uprising against the federal court? Should these judges be arrested under the law called the conspiracy against the United States? It's actually a law, federal law, federal statute saying conspiracy against the United States, right? I think a lot of those uh, FBI cases in recent years, especially against those Trump people, are based on something called the conspiracy against the United States, right? Russia collusion 
the main theme of Russia collusion investigation is based on this federal statute called the conspiracy against the United States. And, uh, and, 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 and then they, they actually, the FBI always fail to prove a crime called the conspiracy against the United States, but they were able to always get something called a process crime. You know what process crime is, right? The process crime in the FBI case is called the lying to the FBI. In Rosa Parks' case, it's called the disorderly conduct against the police officer. When the police officer have no fucking business to begin with, to ask her to move. So remember, what the white people did in the past, they are doing it today too. The only difference is this, they are doing this to the white people also. That's a blessing. That's a that, definitely a blessing. Hold on a second, guys. Now my phone is running out of battery, so I need to plug in a charger. Excuse me. All the detail you involve in all of the reports, it's amazing. It's like, have you ever seen the movie Starship Troopers? No, I have not. Oh, you would love it, Peter. You would absolutely love it. It's written okay. by a really good sci-fi writer. Brilliant movie okay. from the 90s. But I'll let you get back to it. it, it there's always Starship Trooper, right? Yeah, I'll drop it in the chat. It's an amazing movie. Cool. Absolutely. Cool. Cool. Guys, again, thank you for stick around. You know, the detail may be boring, but to me, that's super, super important. I pride myself to know this kind of shitting detail. The details are shitty. The, the details are actually hair-raising stuff. It's not that simple. Oh, one day the MLK get a nonviolent protest and then the segregation went away. Nah, it doesn't work that way, okay? And so... So, so like I said, you see how clever the U.S. Supreme Court is? When they knock down the school segregation, they say, well, maybe other segregation is still okay. So now I'm going to talk about why this, this detail has a meaning for today. I want to talk about this is called a, a crime of aggression. Because I look at the history, the colonial, history of a colonialism. The history of colonialism is a history of crimes by the Western colonizer of a crime of aggressions against people of native lands. Those native lands can be Africa, can be America, can be Asia. Basically, a crime of aggression is that the target is not doing anything worthy of a threat. The worst they think may be flying a weather balloon. But the crime of aggression is a crime committed when the target, when the victim poses zero threat to you. James Blake committed a crime of aggression. The U.S. government committed crime of aggression against the Native Americans. The slave traders committed crime of aggression against African slaves because those targets, they have not done anything 
of a threat. Rosa Parks did not break the law, as evil as the law is. But as the law is written on the book, she did not break that law. Rosa Parks is a victim of a crime of aggression. Rosa Parks, I heard from Stephen Colbert's show that Rosa Parks when said, when the law is unlawful, you have to you know, protest. Well, I will say this. When the law is actually unlawful, we must thank the judicial white privileges and the legal profiteers. They somehow can whitewash the whole shit and make it sound, operates lawful. The vacant seat division is the worst letters written in the stone. You either follow it, abolish it. You either follow it or abolish it. What happened is that James Blake, he violated law. It's important to know this something called the concept called the crime of aggression. Today, we learn about the Nord Stream 2 was bombed. If the Nord Stream 2 is operating uh, uh, as usual and feeding all the gas from Russia to Germany, then that is, by all means, a threat to the West. But as we know, the Nord Stream 2, a multi-billion dollar investment by multiple countries on the international water, is at the time actually is not operating as intended. It's shut because the Germany has said, we are going to stop the Nord Stream 2. But when you use bombs, explosives, to blow it up, when that particular structure had not caused an actual harm to you, Whoever did that committed a crime of aggression. The genocide against the Native Americans by this white majoritarian democracy is also the result of a preemptive crime of aggression. We know who are the aggressors. Aggressors yesterday is also aggressors today. Soon after the Civil War, uh, soon after the, uh, the, the Civil War is, is done, many, many state localities passed law allowing freed black people not to pay taxes. That is a trick. That's a crime of aggression. That is the prelude to exclude free blacks from participating in the white majoritarian democracy. That is another example of a crime of aggression. A crime of aggression actually sometimes comes with all the good intention. 
That's why I said in the last episode, I said, the judicial white privilege and the war machine operate on the same belief. White supremacy to commit crimes of aggression against any other inferior races. The white soul destiny. The terror of a white privilege is the darkest of a whole human history. By a single immutable character, the skin color of a human beings, the white majoritarian democracy arrogates itself the supreme ruler of the world. It's a hegemony solely based on skin color. And the, the, what bothers me the most is that it has the deepest wealth of a legal trickery to quote, legalize, unquote, its own aggression of crimes against other humanities. So that is the darkest his secret about Rosa Parks. That's why I said is that nobody wants to talk about it because they all want to whitewash what actually happened. So I thank everybody to stick around. It is a pretty long presentation. I need to do this because it's a very, there's lots of detail in this. And as a matter of fact, there is another finding about this uh, uh, Montgomery bus boycott, which I'm not going to go over today because I want to do it in the book or in, um, hopefully in the documentary about another piece about Montgomery bus boycott that was never discussed in detail. We never know the true picture of what happened. I have a throw out the, the teaser in the sense that, like I said earlier, it's MLK who said the bus boycott's goal is not to end segregation. The goal of the bus boycott is to have a fixed dividing line on the bus to separate the Negro section and the white section. So let me repeat, that is the actual demand of the Montgomery bus boycott to have a fixed dividing ratio line on the bus. Why is that? That's something else I'm going to write about. But that's a little bit deep. That's a little bit more, you know, legalese, legal genetics, genetics, you want to call it that way. But it's also important. But I was, I, I thank everyone to stick around because uh, the piece I'm bringing today is whether the bus was a full at a time or not, and whether this vacancy provision is still the law of the land at the time or not, is the darkest history of this whole saga. Because as we know today, Rosa Parks remained convicted under a law she did not violate to begin with as evil as the law is, period. So I welcome any comment and, uh, and uh, how about, uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. I can testify ahead, that I was the recipient of white privilege again just this last week. I got pulled over because my car Stickers are out of date, the registration's out of date, inspection's out of date. 
and I needed to get it all redone. And it's like months out of date, you know. And so what used to happen in the past is they would tow my car and they would take it downtown. I'd have to pay like $200 to get my car out of the town after getting a ride down there, you know. And then mm-hmm. you have to go to court and pay like $600, $600 in fines on top of um, re-registering your car and getting insurance and all that stuff again. And he just wrote me this little like warning and said, just call this number, talk to her. It's not a get out of jail t- uh, free ticket, but um, it's not going to cost you anything. I was like, well, awesome. You know, freaking sweet. Mm-hmm. Like I wish they would have done that back in the day, all those other times, <laughs> but I was so, yep. I was so grateful at the same time that he didn't tow my car and, and essentially steal my car, hold my car for ransom. Yeah. It's not like I want you to get a car, get towed and all that, but I just pointed out the fact that there is so-called discretion, the police discretion of enforce a particular law, right? Who guaranteed that this police, whether regardless the color of this police skin color, doesn't matter to me. How do you know the police actually is enforcing the same law, the same code equally among all races? And, uh, you know, and it's same thing with the courts, right? How do we know the courts actually have done its duty to interpret the law, look at the facts, the whole facts, facts, and adjudicate the law without any, without abusing its discretionary power? We don't know that. And we actually know for a fact that the, the courts, the police abuse its power, its power. We know for a fact the courts abuse its power. And this is just, you know, another example. I love this particular in, uh, uh, episode for the reasons this. It shows the three tiers of the white privilege. You started in the legislature, lawmaking. It's the white majority who make the law. To be discriminatory. And then you, you know, this is the first layer. This is the first protection racket. And then you have the second layer. It's the enforcement layer. Enforcement layer, they can exercise white privilege to discriminatory, discriminatory, discriminatively enforce the law. And then when you don't feel fair about it, you go up to the next level. At the judiciary, and there again, you do not know when the justice is being administered administered fairly, equally. And I can tell you it's not. It's not. You know, I actually visited the Supreme Court uh, before that, the Rage Against the War Machine rally. And it's funny that I saw the door of the U.S. Supreme Court because it was closed. It was Saturday. And I find out all the all the engraved figures in the front door of the U.S. Supreme Court. I guess these are all the famous people in the history of law, in the history of jurisprudence, right? Guess what? They're all men. <laughs> it's like, uh, well, I know this is a, Roe v. Wade is decided by an old man, old male bench. <laughs> you, you know, like I said, you cannot rely on another group of people to decide on your own affairs. You cannot have a, another, uh, you know, you just cannot have white people to write your own history if you're black. You know, you cannot have an old male bench to decide a women's issue, period. Okay? I'm not trying to say, you know, we should be suspicious of, 
uh, in a unhealthy way, but uh, you know, and little bit of suspicion is always healthy. I'll, I'll tell you that. So once again, Brady, you know, I appreciate you, you know, you sharing your story with us, and this is you know very typical story. That's why I said the white privilege is not a cultural thing. It's not a behavioral thing. It's actually a governmental thing. It's a legal thing. Anyone else? If not, uh, let's all, go all ahead. Above. Cool. And so, yeah, uh, if nobody else, I, again, appreciate everyone to stick around. And uh, I actually spent a lot of time for this episode and I uh, truly appreciate it. Have a great rest of your Sunday and uh, I will see you uh, next Sunday. Oh, uh, again, I have moving my episode towards 12 o'clock noon and uh, because uh, there's no more, no more uh, NFL games. So I can, I can sleep one hour. Uh, so thank you so much. Have a great rest of a Sunday. Goodbye, Thank you, Peter. Great report.